welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. chapter 5. In fact, we'll start at verse 23. If you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles at the end of the aisles. And if you don't own one, that is for you to keep. If you've got one, just read along and you can leave it there at the end of the service. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and hide it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Down to verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's powerful, that it's alive, that it's active. And so today, I pray that we would open our hearts and our mind to your word. And by your spirit, you would um, speak it into our hearts, that we would live it each and every day. That we would be uh, more like you and we'd be greater representatives of your kingdom because of what you speak to us today. And so we pray for this. We need your Spirit's help with this. And we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. One of my favourite movies of all time is a movie called Jerry Maguire. Who's seen Jerry Maguire? It's kind of Tom Cruise before Tom Cruise became Tom Cruise. A bit kooky. It's kind of closer to Top Gun Tom Cruise than it is to Jack Reacher Tom Cruise. Um, But in the movie Jerry Maguire, he plays this character. um, Tom Cruise plays this character and he's a player agent. He's a player agent for some of the most professional sportsmen in the world. And he's a typical player agent. He's kind of money-hungry and greedy. He's self-absorbed, high-flying, smooth-talking, professional. And he's helped to build his company, which is now one of the greatest sporting agency companies in the US. And so he's at the height of his success. But one night, in the middle of the night, he has an epiphany. He has a revelation. And he starts to type out the things that come to his mind. And he ends up with a 45-page document. It's really a return to his first love. He reminds himself of why he came into this business in the first place. And so he titles this 45-page document, The Things That We Think But Do Not Say. 
The things that we think but do not say. And so in the middle of the night, he goes to an all-night copying place and he prints off 120 copies of this document and he goes and puts it in the pigeonholes of all the other employees in the company. Now the next day, when he walks into the workplace, a little bit bleary-eyed, as he walks through the office, there's a slow clap that starts. And it gets faster and faster and it turns into a a full-blown standing ovation as he comes into the office. And people are are saying things in the crowd like, well done, brilliant, unbelievable. Uh, His other fellow agent, Bob Sugar, comes next to him and says, someone finally said it. And then another guy in the corner of the room says to a friend of his, how long do you give him? And the other guy says, I give him about a week. And sure enough, Bob Sugar takes him out to a crowded cafe within the week and he tells him that they are letting him go. The story goes that he ends up with one single client. Of all the clients he had, he only ends up with one client to manage. And so here he is, he's written this memo, this manifesto, this heartfelt vision, this mission statement. And it's been too hard for people to hear. And he thins the crowd, he loses his client base. Today we're looking at a portion of scripture that is often referred to as the Kingdom Manifesto. Jesus has previously um, mentioned his mission statement that he was sent and to tell people the, the good news of the Kingdom. And now in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, he teaches this Kingdom Manifesto that we know better as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus is not a sleazy salesman. Um, he's not out there doing dodgy stuff. He is the perfect, sinless Son of God. And what he's presenting in this sermon is what it looks like to live as part of his kingdom. And we look at the Gospels and as we follow them through, we see over time as he continues to preach this Gospel that he consistently thins the crowd, that people find the message of the kingdom too difficult to hear and certainly too difficult to live. Last week in week four of Vision Month here at Follow, we focused in on the idea of mission and we talked particularly about the kingdom of God and I made the point last week that the kingdom of God is now but it's not yet. It's now but it's not yet. In other words, when we live kingdom lives in the present, when we are people of um, generosity, when we feed the hungry, when we share the gospel, when we live together in unity, when we love one another and comfort those in need, we present a glimpse of a future kingdom in the present. We become the light of the world. And this is what God invites us to, to be people who join in this mission of redemption throughout creation. However, as I said last week, it will only ever be a glimpse. It will only ever be a a preview. I said last week, kind of like a movie trailer of what it's going to be like when Christ returns. If you want to know what that's like, you can look at Revelation 21, which we talked about last week. And it talks about what this kingdom of God will be like in all of its perfection and all of its fullness when Christ returns. It will be a kingdom where we will be in perfect relationship with him. He will dwell with us, we will dwell with him, he will be our God, we will be his people. It will be a kingdom free of tears, a kingdom free of pain and injustice, a kingdom even free of death. The kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom and for followers of Christ, our hope is in him for forgiveness and when he is our saviour, that perfect kingdom is our future. Let me say that again, when Jesus is our saviour, that perfect kingdom is our future and that's an incredible hope to have. I don't know if you agree with me, but I think sometimes life is very difficult. Some people say life sucks. And when you look at their life and what they're going through, it's hard not to agree with that. There's times when life is very difficult. But in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the difficulty and the struggles, in the midst of the darkness, the Bible says we are the light of the world. And we are called by God. 
to lead people to Christ and to give them a glimpse of this future, not yet kingdom in the now. A future kingdom in the present. And as we do that, we push back the darkness of this world in many different ways. Today we're starting a series, a short series, about four weeks, and it's titled The Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are found in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And they're really um, the nine declarations of blessedness spoken by Jesus at the start of this incredible sermon. Now, just after these statements, it goes into talking about us um, being the light of the world, as I just read a moment ago. And so as we live out these statements, as we live out this kingdom culture, that's what we become in our world. We become the light of the world and we give people a glimpse of what the kingdom is like. And so the next four weeks, we're going to focus on these statements found in verses 1 to 12 of Matthew chapter 5. And today we're going to look at the first three that are found in, verse, found in verses 1 to 5. And so let's pick it up at verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him, in verse 2, he began to teach them. And the first question I had in my mind this week is, why did Jesus go up the mountainside? And I think you need to look at the preceding verses to understand exactly why. Because if you look at those preceding verses, you'll see that his earthly public ministry has just begun and it's pretty full on. There's a lot of stuff happening. Now, Jesus went through Galilee, he was teaching in their synagogues, he was preaching the good news of the kingdom, and it says that people were bringing all sorts of people to him, and he was healing every sickness and disease. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him those that were suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. I feel tired just reading that list. And you can see how full-on this would have been for Jesus. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Judea, Jerusalem, and the region right across the Jordan followed him. And so they have come from everywhere, and they're flocking to hear Jesus teach, and they're flocking to see him heal people. Now, you might remember many years ago, there was a small band called the Beatles. Does anyone remember them? All the seniors put up their hand. Sorry, we don't have any seniors here. All the seniors in denial have put up their hand and said, yes, I remember the Beatles. Um, well, I don't remember them really. I um, was not around to witness their fame like some of you were. Um, I personally wasn't even a twinkle in my parents' eye when they were famous and they sort of rose to fame. So I didn't experience, but I have seen the footage, the, the black and white footage with the horses and carts and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> and the Beatles. And, and what I do remember is that there was hysteria when the Beatles were rising to fame. Uh, you know, the ladies seemed to love them, and they'd be like, ah! And, and they'd be screaming and yelling, a bit like when I get home from work each day. And I open the door and my wife and, and daughters run down the passageway, ah, daddy's home, and they jump into my arm and it's really quite an amazing moment. And I'm sure the rest of the dads here can relate to that. I'm sure it's exactly the same for you. I've heard stories that some teenagers, they don't even look up and acknowledge when their dad gets home. They just grunt and keep looking at the iPhone, not in our house. It's quite an event in our house. And people are very excited when daddy gets home. Just don't ask them about it, please. But everywhere they went, there was this hysteria and people followed them and flocked to them. And I'm sure if you asked them, at the height of their fame, I'm sure there were moments where they just wished they could have some peace and quiet, some privacy, just to be alone, to read a book, to have some time to pause and reflect what was going on. But it was simply impossible. Now, Jesus was not a member of the Beatles. That is good theological truth. Write it down today. Jesus was not a member of the Beatles. I don't want to hear anyone say, Pastor Luke said Jesus was in the Beatles. Not a member of the Beatles. But we do know that Jesus was fully God and fully human. 
And as humans, uh, we can relate to him and he can relate to us and some of the things we go through. And as human beings, you will know that sometimes we just need space. We need quietness. We need privacy. I remember a couple of years ago, I said to my wife, obviously before Follow started, but I said to my wife, do you know what I love most about ministry? And she said, what? And I said, people. And I said, do you know what drives me crazy? Absolutely bonkers, the most about ministry? And she said, what? And I said, the same answer. <laughs> it's people. Sometimes we just need a space. We just need a bit of a break. And as you look at Jesus' ministry life and the busyness and the hysteria that was going on, there's no doubt that some of the moments in his life would have been incredibly difficult. He would have experienced tiredness and sadness. And there's times in his ministry that you look at where he periodically withdrew by himself to, to be alone and to spend time in prayer with his father. And so these are the preceding verses in chapter 4 leading into this great sermon and it explains why Jesus has gone up the hill to get a bit of a breather. And so verse 1 says he went up onto the mountainside. Now I need to make it clear, we're not talking about Mount Everest here. It's not like he got on the hiking pack and he got on the spikes and the harness and he said, I've had enough of you lot, I'm going for a month, don't bother calling, I'll get no reception up there and so I'm just going for a month and then I'm coming back. It wasn't like that. Um, commentators say it's more likely to be the steeply rising ground to the west of the Lake of Galilee. And so he's headed to the hills. He wants to get some space, but it's not long before he finds himself occupied again. If we look at the end of verse 1, it said, His disciples came to him. Now, John Maxwell says that if you think you're a leader, then you should look behind you. And if there's no one following, you're simply just going for a nice walk. <laughs> Jesus was not a leader like that, he was an incredible leader. And not only did the crowds flock to him and follow him, but his disciples followed him to the point of laying down their life because of their belief in him. Now, that's leadership, to inspire people with a, big, a vision bigger than yourself to the point where they go, you know what, I'll give my life to that. I'll lay my life down for that. And so here's Jesus. The disciples have come to him. And it gives us a little bit of an idea of who the audience was for this great sermon. It wasn't necessarily the crowds. It was his disciples. And so he begins to teach them. And we have this amazing teaching, these Beatitudes. Now, many commentators have different ideas on what this teaching was all about. Some people say that Jesus was laying down the entry conditions to be part of the kingdom. Now, you and I are going to hope that's not true. Because if these are the entry requirements of being part of the kingdom of God, we fall short every single day of our lives. And none of us are going to make it if these are the entry requirements that we have to keep perfectly. Other people say, well, that's not the case, but they say it's an example for another age. In other words, this not yet kingdom, this is what Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes. He's not talking about now, he's talking about then. Now, my question would be, how can that possibly be true when it says, blessed are those who mourn, and in that coming kingdom, it says there is no mourning. It can't be a future kingdom, he's talking about what's happening now. Other people say it's an optional elitism. In other words, Jesus is just talking to the superstars of Christian ministry, the, the holier ones, God's just speak, Jesus is just talking to those that are somehow specially called and this is relevant for them but it's not relevant for most of us. Martin Luther said this teaching was an impossible ideal. In other words, Jesus is giving God's perfect expression of his moral will which is impossible for humans to maintain and therefore it forces us to recognise our sinfulness and cry out to God in repentance and I think there's some truth to that for sure. But I think it's more than that. I think this is actually something that with the Holy Spirit's help, Jesus wants us to strive towards and to live with his help. 
in our lives now. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have given your life to the Lord, then today Jesus is talking to you and he's talking to me and he's telling us about the essence of kingdom life throughout all generations. And so Jesus starts to teach. And as Jesus teaches, I think that there was just as much unteaching to be done than there was teaching. Last week I said that the Jews already had preconceived ideas on what this kingdom of God would look like. They believed that Jesus the Messiah was going to lead them in rebellion against the Roman Empire. They were going to overthrow them and they were going to become the superpower on earth. And then they were going to reign and rule with this Messiah. And so it would be a big, strong, powerful earthly kingdom. And so I'm sure they would have been excited as Jesus starts to teach them. They must have been thinking, wow, this is great because Jesus is going to lay out the blueprint. He's going to give us the grand vision for this kingdom. And so they would have been really excited. And I can imagine them anticipating, what role will I play in this kingdom? How are we going to rise up and be powerful and strong and victorious? And so it's into this culture that Jesus starts to teach. And the first four words he speaks as he lays out this powerful kingdom vision. Blessed are the poor. You can imagine people in the crowd, especially people at the back. What did he say? Blessed are the... What did he say? Did he say poor? He can't have said poor. No, no. We must have misheard him. He must be trying to say something else. That can't be right. What has blessed and poor got to do in the same sentence? And how is poor relating to this kingdom that we're so excited about, this kingdom we've been waiting generations for? That can't be right. Maybe we heard it wrong, but he continues. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the cheesemakers. For the Life of Brian fans out there, it's another one for the seniors. All the young people, it's just gone right over their head. Just think about Justin Bieber in one direction. We've covered everyone today. But blessed are those who are persecuted. You can see all of a sudden how different this teaching is. Because in their kingdom expectation, in their understanding of what a kingdom is like, they would have expected to hear blessed are the rich. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the joyful. Blessed are those who are self-sufficient. Blessed are those who are ruthless. Blessed are those who do whatever it takes for success. Blessed are those who win battles. Blessed are those who dominate. This is what they would have been anticipating. And so Jesus starts to teach and to unteach about the kingdom. And it's completely different to what they were expecting. It was an upside down, inside out, countercultural kingdom unlike anything they had ever seen or known. And it's really not that much different to when we become Christians. You see, the people in Jesus' day were conditioned by their understanding of a kingdom. We're conditioned by our world around us. And so it's really not that much different. We're also taught to honour the celebrities and respect the wealthy and idolise the sportsmen and follow the popular. We're taught to value wealth, to strive for power and position, to go up the corporate ladder to indulge ourselves, to look after number one. And so Jesus had to unteach as he taught the kingdom, just as we need to unlearn as we learn Christ. When we become Christians, everything we think is most important, all of the things we find identity in, all the things we get security from, all of our understanding of true success, all the things we value the most are pretty much turned completely on their head. This is what Jesus is doing as he teaches on the kingdom. And so he starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. This would have shocked them to the core. Blessed are the poor 
in spirit. So the question is, who are these people he refers to, the poor in spirit? Well, scholars have two main positions on who Jesus is referring to. Some say he's referring to those that are materially poor, but most say he's referring to those who are poor, not in material possessions as such, but in spirit. Now, an interesting note to make note of today is that in the parallel passage in Luke's Gospel, it simply says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And I think both of these perspectives actually have some merit to them. I don't think that God wants us necessarily to sell everything and to go and live on the streets. But it is true that excessive wealth can be a great hindrance to entering the kingdom of God. You might remember the story of the rich young ruler in uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. And this young guy comes to Jesus and he asks the most important question we can ever ask. And he says, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Jesus replies, we'll keep the commandments. And he says, which ones? Jesus lays out which ones. And he says, that's all good. I've kept all of those. What do I still lack? Jesus looks beyond the external things. And he looks into this guy's heart and he sees what is holding him back. It's his love for money. And he says, one more thing I ask you to do. Go and sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And so Jesus went on to teach and he said, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. He says, we can't serve both God and money. We'll love one and despise the other. The writer of Proverbs, chapter 30, says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And so you can see how being materially rich can be a real hindrance to entering the kingdom of God because money is one of those things that can easily grab our hearts and push God off the throne and become the number one thing in our lives. And the more we get, the more we want, and we never kind of get enough, and so it becomes the God of our lives. And so you can see how being more poor materially can actually be a blessing because you don't have the influence of wealth to steal away your affection from God. Jesus says, what good is it to gain the whole world and yet at the same time forfeit your soul? And so it's a challenge for us. And so some people say Jesus is talking about being poor materially, but most people think that it's talking about being poor spiritually. And I think this is the better translation, particularly in Matthew's Gospel. Those who are poor in spirit are merely those who gladly cast themselves upon God's grace. They are the people who say, I am poor in spirit, and they acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy before God. You know, I think sometimes it's really easy to judge our spiritual condition by the externals, isn't it? Even at church we can do that. We can look around and we can say, well, they've got it all together spiritually, but those people haven't. And we can fall for the trap of kind of comparing ourselves to others. And we can think, well, I don't have it all together, but I'm certainly more holy than, than Paul Clement. And I'm certainly more spiritual than Rowan. And so I must be okay, but you haven't seen me watch the footy. And if you did, you'd probably think they're a lot more holy than I am. And so it's easy to judge by the externals, isn't it? To look at people and go, well, they look like they've got it all together. But God doesn't look at those things. He looks at the heart. In Luke chapter 18, uh, Jesus addresses this, verses 9 to 14. He said, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Let's lay the foundation here. Pharisee is the spiritual elite 
the guy that everyone else would look at and say, he's got it all together. The tax collector was the worst of the worst. People called them the scum of the earth. They were treacherous traitors. They were selfish, indulgent people who ripped others off. And so you've got this spiritually elite guy in the temple and then you've got this lowest of the low tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, these robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Because twice a week, I fast and I give a tenth of all that I have. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He didn't even have the nerve to look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the religious man came into the temple thinking that he was rich in his own righteousness, and because of that, he left with his own righteousness, which really means nothing before God. And yet this poor man came, poor in his spirit regarding his own righteousness, and because of that, he left righteous because his righteousness was not dependent on himself, but rather it was dependent on God. And so just as it's hard for a materially rich man to enter the kingdom of God, it's even harder for someone who is spiritually rich to enter the kingdom of God because the spiritually rich person is the person who says, I am good enough. I don't need any help. I don't need a saviour. I've done lots of good things. I'm a good person. And so it means I've earned and I've deserved a relationship with God. And let me tell you, that is anti the gospel. The gospel says that every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and there's not a single person in this planet that could ever be right before God in and of their own strength or because of the things they've done right or said right or or the way they've acted. It'll always fall short of God's perfect standard. This is where Jesus comes in, that he on the cross took upon himself our sins and everything we've done wrong he, he, he stretched out his hands and he said, it's finished. And so when we accept what Christ has done, all of our sin, all of the things we've done wrong was placed on Christ who took the price. And Jesus, in exchange, gave us his righteousness. And so when God the Father looks at us, he no longer sees a bunch of useless sinners who have to pay the penalty themselves because Jesus paid the penalty. Instead, he looks at you and I and he sees the righteousness of Christ. It's a beautiful exchange that happens in a relationship with Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes into relationship with God except through him. Now, I've heard people say before that Jesus is just a crutch for the weak. And you know, Christians get so offended by that. The only thing that offends me about that is it doesn't go far enough. Jesus is so much more than a crutch. I can't have my next breath without him. I'm lost without him. He's not a crutch. He's a life support machine. He's a heart transplant. Jesus has taken out my cold, sinful heart of stone and he's replaced it with a heart of flesh and I have come alive in Christ. Without him, I can do nothing. In him, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Jesus isn't a crutch. He's a heart transplant. He changes us from the inside out. I'm poor in spirit, so are you. But when we're weak, he is strong. He is our righteousness. 
Matthew 5.20, it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who are the ones that look like they had it all together, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Pharisees might know their Bible better than us. They might pray the fancy prayers on the street corner. They may even do more good deeds. But the difference is we have Christ. And that's where our righteousness comes from. The question I want to ask you today is this, who is greater, us or God? It's not a trick question. Who is it greater, us or God? God is greater, absolutely. And so people would look at this and they'd say to be poor in spirit is a position of weakness. I think it's a position of strength. Because when you're poor in spirit, you say it's nothing to do with me and it's everything to do with him. But when you're rich in spirit, it says it's nothing to do with him and it's everything about what I've done. And so being poor in spirit is a kingdom way to live. And it's a position of strength. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second thing he says, and the next two points won't be quite as long, but he says, blessed are those who mourn. Have you ever looked at someone mourning and think, man, they're blessed? I haven't. It doesn't look like they're blessed when they're mourning. I've always struggled to understand, what does this mean? How can it possibly be blessed to be people who mourn? I listened to a sermon recently by a guy called J.D. Greer at the Summit Church. Braden put me onto this podcast and he was talking about this passage and he said something that really resonated with me. He said, those who are mourning, those who mourn, are those who are emotionally connected with others. He says, we're designed to be happy when we pour out our lives for others. Now, the truth is, we will never mourn if we're not emotionally connected with other people because we simply won't care enough. We won't care that people are struggling. But when we mourn, what we're doing is we're entering into the pain of our own lives, but also empathising with the pain of others. And even though these times of mourning can be incredibly painful, they can also be times of incredible blessing as we journey with others in relationship and those relationships go deeper and become an incredible blessing in our lives. Romans chapter 12 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. A number of years ago, I was pastoring at Beaconsville Baptist Church. And there was a young guy called Josh who came into our Sunday night service, young adult service. And I did an altar call at the end of the message and he raised his hand. He didn't even raise his hand. I said, is there anyone that wants to receive Jesus as their Lord and Saviour? And he stood up in his seat and he said, Luke, I do. Well, that's not usually how it goes, but that's okay. I like that. He said, I want to become a Christian. And so after the service, I prayed with him and we, we went through the sinner's prayer and he came to know the Lord and it was such a joy over the next 12 months to see him grow in his faith. Each week I would catch up with him for a coffee and I'd give him a chapter of the Bible to read and he would come prepared with notes and questions scribbled down and he'd come and ask me all about what certain things mean in the Bible and I saw this incredible growth start to happen in his life. 12 months later, it was Josh's birthday. I hadn't seen him for a week or so, so I gave him a call, but I got his voicemail. And I said, Josh, just ringing to say, happy birthday, hope you have a great day, and I'll catch you in church soon. Anyway, I got a call the next day, the phone rang, and it said Josh on the screen, and I picked up the phone, I said, Joshy boy, how are you? And on the other end of the phone was dead silence. And after a, what seemed like an eternity, someone said, it's not Josh. And then he just started saying, my boy, my boy, my boy. And he told me, Luke, Josh, last night, 26 years of age, had a heart attack and died. I couldn't believe it. I was late for church. I went to church and I just wept through the whole service. It broke my heart that this young guy had died. And to that point, I'd only met his parents once. 
But since that time, we've mourned together, we've laughed together, we've journeyed together. I conducted the funeral and we've become deep in our friendship and our relationship. He calls me his adopted son and he asks me questions about faith all the time. I call him my temporary um, non-Christian friend. Him and his wife, I'm praying that they'll come to our Alpha course this year and hear the basics of Christianity. Adele's house-sitting at their house right now, but something has happened in the midst of this pain. Blessing has been found even in the midst of mourning as our relationship has gone deeper. You see, mourning is one of those things that causes us to empathise with others, to be active in our sympathy. And it causes us to a place of action as our hearts break for those who are less fortunate than us, as we mourn for those in our world who are struggling so bad. Blessed are those who minister to the poor. Blessed are those who mourn for them. Blessed are those who sponsor kids. Blessed are those who look after those who are lonely in the school ground. Blessed are those who stand for justice for those who are discriminated against. Blessed are those who encourage the downhearted. Blessed are those who journey with those going through the valleys of the shadow of death. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted ultimately by God, but also by those they journey with. Blessed are those who mourn. Thirdly, today and finally, Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Now, when we hear that word, it's probably a bit of an indifferent word. To be meek sort of sounds insipid and pathetic and boring. Who on earth would want to be meek? Jesus is. There's a good start. Jesus was meek. When we understand the biblical definition of meek, it's not something boring or insipid, it's something incredibly powerful. It means to actively put ourselves second. It means power under control. Jesus was God and yet he washed people's feet. That's power under control. That's choosing to be second. Jesus was God and yet he meekly served. Jesus was God but he laid his life down for us. That's humility and it's meekness and it's power under control and God exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. And I don't know about you but that's the kind of community I want to be part of. A community that's full of people that make a decision to honour others above themselves. A group of people who will put themselves second. That's an incredibly powerful community to be a part of. You know, we made a decision when we started Follow that we're not going to be one of those churches that bickers about the stupid little things that don't matter. We're not going to argue about what colour the wall is. We're not going to talk about whether the grape juice is too strong or not strong enough at communion. We're not going to talk about whether there should be two songs or three songs and bicker amongst ourselves about all that nonsense when there's people outside the four walls that are right now separated from God. There's bigger things to do. But to be a community like that, we're going to need to be people who put ourselves second on a regular basis, that lay down our own wants and desires and needs. And if you want to go to a church that bickers about all that sort of stuff, well, it's sad to say there's many around and you can find one. It's probably just not this one. But let me warn you, when you find it, it's no fun at all because you are, as you are consumeristic in what you want and what you need, you'll be surrounded by a bunch of other people that are exactly the same. And the ironic thing is this, that when we lay our lives down for one another, all of us have our needs met, but not by selfishly grabbing for ourselves, but because other people are laying their lives down for us and we are laying our lives down for them. That's how it works in a kingdom economy. That's what God's calling us to as a church. And it's incredibly important in this culture and it's incredibly important in leadership as well. If you've ever been in a church where there is leadership that has power not under control, you'll see how important meekness is as you see people manipulated and hurt 
and abused and shunned. As you see, leaders dominate over other people. They come feeling broken and leave completely shattered. And you'll see that meekness is not something that's insipid or boring or pathetic, but it's as important as any other virtue in terms of shaping culture that reflects a kingdom. As a church, we are to present the kingdom of God, to represent the kingdom of God to the world around us. You see, Jesus on the cross could have at any moment called down a legion of angels to save him, especially when those were taunting him to save himself. But instead, he meekly submitted to his father's will. He said, not my will be done, but yours. He submitted himself and he said, I'm going to put myself second. And he put you and I above his needs and his wants and his desires right there on the cross. That's meekness. That's power under control. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, coming, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that's above every other name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. How will we inherit the earth? Well, Revelation 21 tells us there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and it will be inherited and filled by those that are meek, those that follow in Jesus' footsteps. In the Strong's Concordance, it says, In this kingdom we receive by God's grace the good things that the arrogant fruitlessly strive for in this present earth and more. And this is not just a future reality only. Even in a broken world, those who recognize their true strengths and weaknesses can find peace by living realistically. Those who exercise power for the benefit of others are often admired. And so when we live lives of meekness, power under control, where we take second place wherever we can, we remove ourselves from that insatiable desire for more power, for more control, for more stuff, for more me. And the ironic thing is that as we do that, we'll be happier people. Because Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In an upside down kingdom, blessed are those, the Greek word literally means happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray.